Thank you for tuning in to another week of Hashtag Prepped. Before we begin this week's episode where we'll be discussing how to increase already high math scores, please visit our website at preppodcast.com and feel free to leave us a review. And if you're feeling up to it, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate that. And with that said, let's get into this week's episode. From Test Takers, this is the Hashtag Prep Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about standardized testing and college admissions so that you can help your students navigate this important time with accurate and insightful information. Hosted by Test Takers Director of Development, Andrew Naniakara, and Director of Personnel, Jeremy Freed. So prepare to learn the secrets that will help your students gain clarity, reduce stress, and work smarter, not harder. This is the Hashtag Prep Podcast. Alrighty, let's get into this week's episode. We're going to be discussing an important topic for high-scoring math students on how to bring those scores up even higher. Many of our students walk into this course with strong scores. Usually the English scores are a little bit weaker because students aren't taught grammar in school or the way they've been taught to read kind of works counter to the strategies needed for the SAT. But how do you take these already strong math scores and make them stronger? To help me discuss that today, we have Mike McClendon of the Pwn the SAT book series, a fantastic book series that helps students improve their math scores through practice, review, and good strategies. Mike, could you introduce yourself to our listeners today? Hi, and thanks for having me. It's like to be here. I, I started my test prep game many years ago at, at Test Takers, like you are now. And in the intervening years uh, since leaving there, I wrote a couple books that have helped kids uh, prepare for the math section of the SAT. Uh, you can find them if you go to Amazon. Uh, Pwn the SAT. It's P-W-N, the SAT. And uh, there's also a website that I run where kids can ask questions and I'll answer for free. And we're trying to figure out how we take these high math scores and make them even better. So, Mike, do you think you can tell me what do you consider to be a great math score or a high math score to start off with? Well, you know, I, I think that um, high is in the eye of the beholder. So it doesn't really matter what I think is a high score. I think, I think like it's uncontroversial to say like mid seven hundreds or higher is, is, you know, high score, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and absolutely, because getting that high score means that you can only miss a few problems at the end of the day. And this is the SAT. It's the SAT, the, like, the biggest test these students will be taking. Why do you think it's so hard for students to get that like a perfect math score? Well, you know, there's there's almost no room for error. Once in a while, you get a test where you can get one wrong and still get an 800. But Usually you need to be perfect. And there are some high scores, you know, not 800. There's always an 800 on a scoring table, but there's some high scores that just aren't there on a lot of tests. Like you'll have a 800 for 58 correct and then 57 correct will be 790 and 56 correct will be 770. Uh, there's no 760, uh, no 780 to be had. And, you know, 55 correct might be 750 and there's no 760 to be had. So the reason it's hard is because you have to be perfect and being perfect is, is really hard. And that aspect that you were talking about before relates to the scoring tables on the SATs, that there is that natural variation. So while it may be not easier, you have a little bit more wiggle room to get like an 800 on one test, not so much on another test. So there is that natural variability. So the scoring tables do play that little bit of a role uh, on that. That's why if you listen to any of our previous podcasts, we recommend signing up for at least two SATs to kind of hedge your bets on having a harsh scoring table there. Do you feel that the higher scoring students are missing harder problems, making sillier mistakes? What do you think is holding back students on that high end? 
You know, you can't paint with a super broad brush uh, about, you know, the high scores. But once in a while, test writers come up with a question that's just really hard. But it makes it through because it, enough people get it right. Um, but it stumps even some super high scorers. And if in, in the one minute or one minute and a half that you have to solve that one really hard problem, you don't have the critical insight you need, you don't get that problem. And, and that happens. But it's also, it's super common to see kids uh, get all the hard ones right and then make an error or two early in the section. And that's what costs you your, your perfect score. And it, it's, you know, it can be a simple calculation error. It can be a bubbling error, but you have to be perfect, not just in like your math and calculations, but also, you know, you have to be assiduous in your bubbling to, to have that perfect score. It's not like that they're giving super complicated. They're not going to ask you for the integration of the natural log of X on that, right? They're not going to hit you with a completely out of the blue topic that hasn't been tremendously tested or that they haven't seen in high school before. So the way I like to view it is that there is that they have the content base that they just need to apply it. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it comes from knowing the test, right? And that's where the value of prep is. For, For kids who are coming in with high scores, they generally know the material. Maybe they need to be reminded about one or two things. Maybe there's one thing that they were sick the week it was covered in school and they, and they missed. So um, they, they might benefit from some content refreshing just like everyone does. But um, for the most part, they know the stuff and getting to know the test is, you know, a really important part of prep. It's not just knowing the stuff, but it's knowing, you know, when they ask a question about, you know, trait, right? Because those are fairly rare questions and, and sort of the, the more advanced level of the math that you could get asked. Like, how do they usually ask it? What kinds of trick operations do you need to understand? Do you ever need to, uh, I don't really want to get into talking too much about trick, but sorry, go ahead. No, because I was going to say, when it comes to the trick, it's not like they're going to be asking you like sine squared thetas or any of those identity rules. It's usually just like the side of one angle equals the cosine of another angle. That they keep it to something an application of a basic SOHCAHTOA concept. So when the students come across a hard problem, like, you know the content, you just need to think of it in a different way, usually. And that usually means use a technique like plug-in or backsolve or one of those classics. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, uh, you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? A lot of high-scoring kids, quote-unquote, um, you know, they, they have the opposite problem, where, uh, you know, they're bringing like a like a heat-seeking missile to a food fight. Um, and they're trying to use stuff that they're learning in school now, right? They, like a lot of these kids might be in calculus uh, in junior year, uh, but there's no calculus on the SAT. And, and they might be trying to apply what they're, what they're doing now because it's what's freshest for them when really they need to be thinking back to freshman, sophomore year math. Yeah, and it comes back again to knowing what's on the test so that you can apply the right stuff and not get yourself sidetracked with, uh, you know, the stuff that you don't need to do on this test, even though you're doing it every day in school. What are the spicy topics these students need to know? Because they don't need to know calculus for the SAT. What are the topics that they should probably focus on or that you feel kind of pops up in that last, the like few hard questions on the SAT? Well, you know, it's, there's a lot of variables, but I'd say like a few things that, that I've seen consistently like fairly high scorers need a reminder on corresponding coefficients questions seem to give people a lot of trouble, right? Where, um, you know, you, you'll have, you know, a polynomial equals another polynomial, but one of them will be, will be factored and one of them won't. And there's going to be an A in there somewhere for a, co- uh, a coefficient. 
And you've got to figure out what A is. And if you remember that on the left side of the equation and the right side of the equation, the X squared coefficient has to be the same. And the, uh, the X coefficient has to be the same. And the constant coefficient has to be the same. Uh, then that's an easy question. But if you, if you don't remember that, or if you're missing that insight, uh, it's, it's hard to know where to start on a question like that. And I've, I've seen that one stump a lot of kids. Um, there's also, this is a super uncommon thing, but it's, it's something that I've seen sort of blow up the Reddit boards every time it appears on a, on a real test is, uh, is like box plots that, that really has uh, it's, it's an easy concept, but I guess it's not one that, that a lot of kids have, have spent much time doing. Um, yeah. The whisper box. I think that showed up on the March 2018 test, where I think was the first time it popped up on that one. Yeah, but I mean, College Board in their in their own materials has always said it's a possible thing, right? Dot plots are also something that that could appear, although it never does. Um, but it's 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 one of these things where I I don't know if I would call it a spicy topic, but it, it's something that um, if you're not familiar with it and it appears on your test. Uh, you know, you might be in, in some trouble. And so if you're really shooting for, you know, the perfect or almost perfect score, it behooves you to know that things like that are possibilities and to know the basics of what's in a box plot. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole, try to expose yourself to as many tests as possible, practice, practice, practice. But even with those box plot problems, to reinforce the point that they know the content to a degree, they kind of need to apply just the concept of like the medians and those those the little benchmarks there specifically for that one. Any other topics that you think? I'm trying to remember. I'm thinking uh, completing the square on a unit circle. That's always fun. Or just yeah, completing yeah. the square in general, <laughs> not specifically the unit circle, but yeah. Well, I, I'd say like circle equations, that's something that they didn't used to have that now they, well, didn't used to have all the way back in 2015. But that, that's that's a sort of newer concept that they added when they revised the test that gives people some trouble and, and trig and complex numbers. You know, I haven't seen them test complex numbers in a very complex way, but, you know, it's there. And I think that because it's sort of lumped into the bucket of questions that you're only going to get, you know, between geometry and complex numbers, uh, you're only going to get six questions on the entire test, right? So, and there's so many concepts within that, that you got to go a lot of tests before you see a lot of questions like that. And I think because of that, kids who only look at a test or two might be caught completely off guard if that appears on their real test. You know, one thing I was talking to the other directors about was just how good we are at our math skills that, you know, if you're going for that perfect math score, these students who are taking like super neuro calculus, as I like to call it, that they should be able to do that, say, non-calculator math section and about like half the time. Would you say that's a fair ask? Uh, you know, I, I, I always caution against sort of doing speed runs. Because as I know that you have discussed on other episodes of this podcast, the easy questions are worth the same as the hard ones. And it goes back to the, the sort of quote unquote careless errors we talked about before. If, if you're missing number five, but getting number 38, you just got the same score as someone who got number five and missed number 38 and you did it the hard way. So you really got to prioritize accuracy on every question before you worry about speed. And, uh, you know, this is a tension that, that a lot of kids struggle with. And, and I think practice generally gets you fast enough, but I, I really, I try and discourage the, uh, the trying to do it in half the time, just because I feel like once you, once you introduce the idea that you need to be that fast, 
you're creating maybe more problems than you're solving. No, that's, that's interesting. Well, the big thing that I always remind students is that, you know, when it comes to the silly mistakes is that they're going to make a mistake. If you haven't done an 800 yet, you're going to make a mistake at some point and you have to kind of change the script for yourself. You have to kind of adjust the game to kind of a search that you finish a section and now you have to kind of go and find where did you maybe make that mistake somewhere down the line. I think that uh, what you just said about checking your work is is really important. And a lot of a lot of folks don't really know how to check their work, and so they just go back and and look at their work when possible. And if you're if you're if you've prepped a lot, then you you might know more than one approach to a question. And so maybe you solved it by back solving the first time, uh, or you should try and solve it by algebra the second time, or vice versa. Right? If you if you did algebra the first time, make sure that your answer makes sense arriving at it a different way. And, and just, you know, knowing yourself, I, I think, I think coming back to the concept of, of the silly mistake or the careless error, that's another thing that can really, it can really hamstrung kids. If, if they're too quick to call a mistake, a careless error, when you're a high scoring kid, you don't make that many mistakes. And so the data that you generate when you take a practice test you know, it only shows you maybe, maybe you make three mistakes in a test. If you dismiss those all as careless errors, you know, the only mistakes you made are careless errors and you are not giving yourself the chance to maybe polish up a content area that could help you if you polish it up, not make that mistake in the future. And so, you know, I, I think that, I don't know if hubris, hubris is the the right word, but. Um, I think it's the right word for it. <laughs> yeah, well, for some kids it is. Um, <laughs> like when you make a mistake, you have to really, you know, look deep within yourself and be honest. And was that a careless error or would you benefit from reviewing a few more questions like that one? That, that's something I tell all of our students to do when we do a diagnostic review or any of the test reviews. Yeah, you made a mistake, put an X by it, but don't just, it's not the, you made a mistake, let me move on. You have to understand the why. So either write a note like you misread it or you made a mathematical error. If you straight up didn't know how to do it, circle it and make sure when you go to revisit it, absolutely spend that time to nail it the second time before you see it on your actual SAT. Yeah. And you know, like one thing that's not a bad idea to do is um, to create a collection of all the mistakes you've made, uh, whether it's by, you know, taking pictures and, and, you know, using an app to revisit those or whether it's by writing them down in a notebook or cutting them out of a book and pasting it in a notebook. But Going back every once in a while and making sure that you are never going to miss again every question that you've ever missed is, you know, it's a brute force way to, to do it. But it's a way to make sure that that you really are learning the lessons you should be learning from your mistakes. So, Mike, I kind of want to wind down this episode just talking about the concept of the perfect score that we have. These Some students with like a 780 and they're finding like, I need a perfect score. And that's why I was kind of leading into that hubris angle there because you don't need a perfect score. The perfect math score isn't the answer to all of your prayers there. It's a, you know, it's holistic review when it comes to, to college. Um, but yeah, any, any advice for those students? Yeah, well, you know, I, I started, you asked me in the beginning, um, what I consider to be a high score. And I hedged on it because of exactly this thing. For some people, no score is high enough unless it's perfect. I, um, I've often tried to talk people down from that and, uh, you know, with some success, but also some notable failures. Um, I think that, you know, if you're, if you're listening to these words, an 800 is numerically higher than a 790 or a 780, but it is not going to be the difference 
um, between you getting into a school or not, if you have a 780 or an 800. And, you know, you don't have to look far, especially in, in the, uh, in the days of internet stories being written about kids getting into schools or getting rejected from schools. There's tons of stories. Just Google it. Kids with perfect SAT scores, not getting into schools. So it, it is not a surefire door opener to have an 800 when you already have a high score and the effort it's going to take to change that 780 to an 800. Um, first of all, you might never do it because as, as you said before, Naka, um, you know, mistakes happen, but uh, second of all, the time that you're going to spend, uh, you know, chasing that white whale might be better spent focusing on other things like, you know, crafting a really great admissions essay or, um, on that reading score, I was going to say, <laughs> or working on that like reading all score. The time, right? Some of my students are like, I have to do all this extra work for that. I was like, but how about that English score? Let's get that up a little bit. But yeah, I, I think that trying to, to not be myopic about the score is, you know, there's a tension there too, right? Because we, we work with kids with high scores and we try and help them get higher. Right. And, and, and that's, that's important. And I don't think it's, it's a bad goal to try it. You know, self-improvement in general is a good goal, but you should look at all of your opportunities for self-improvement. And if you uh, are pretty close to perfect in one area, but you have another area that, you know, you know, requires a lot of work, but maybe the work is not as much fun. I think a lot of people who are high scorers in math, you know, kind of find the math SAT sort of fun. And, and that's part of what drives the, the push to get, you know, higher and higher. And, you know, maybe you need to do the less fun prep and work on that, uh, work on that grammar, work on those reading comprehension uh, sections to, to shore that score up before you worry about 780 to 800 math. And Mike, I guess the last question I would ask is any good resources you'd recommend for some math improvement? Oh, uh, yeah, my book. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, if anyone wants to get in contact with you or wants to find your book, where can they find you? Thanks for asking. It's pwntestprep.com, pwntestprep.com. So Mike, we like to end each episode with a hashtag prep pro tip. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah. You know, I, I think the main thing that I, I tell people to do, especially uh, when they're getting frustrated or if they feel like they're plateauing or hitting the wall is just do something every day. And it can be an easy, as easy as one question. You know, I, I email out questions of the day, Monday through Friday, uh, sign up for that, but just do something. It doesn't need to be a full practice test. It doesn't even need to be, you know, an hour work, worth of work or 15 minutes worth of work. It, it can just be one question, but if you keep the momentum of doing something every day, it adds up. And uh, I think that's, that's worth doing. Thank you for that, Mike. It's all about developing those habits. Michael Cunningham from Poem Test Prep. I'm Naka, and this has been Hashtag Prep. Next time, this is fun.